by show of hands, how many of you want to have a life that's worth living? All right. Good. I saw most hands go up. Now, a couple of you, you kind of just sat there. I don't know what's happening. But um, unless you've got some sort of disorder or something like that, you want a life that has meaning, right? All of us want to live a life that has value, one that you look back and you say, that was valuable. It was worth it. My life made a difference in some way, and so on. So we all want that, okay? That's, that's like a common denominator with human beings. But here's the, here's the hard question. What does that life actually look like? All of us want to live a life, you know, have a life that's worth living, but that next step is where the gap happens for us. So what does that kind of life look like? Well, some of us may think that it's with fame or money or power, but we learn very quickly from example after example that that does not bring satisfaction. In the end, that is not the life worth living. The famous heavyweight boxer Muhammad Ali said, I had it all and found out it was nothing. So where is meaning? Where is value? Where is effectiveness? Where is eternal success truly found? That's the question I want to answer for us today. As we enter into our last week from our Who's Your One series, we finished that series on praying for and sharing Jesus, starting with one person. What is the life worth living? Here's a spoiler alert. A life worth living is found in knowing and following Jesus and making him known to others. That's the life worth living. That's the rewarding life. That's the life that has meaning, that has value, that has satisfaction, and brings with it an eternal impact. And so with that, would you turn with me to John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. John chapter 1, 35 through 51, page 886 in your pew Bible, if you have that this morning. As you're turning there, this is the very, very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus, right before this passage, comes and he, and John the Baptist, who was really the rock star preacher of his day, right before Jesus, he was the forerunner of Jesus, sees Jesus in the distance. He's been preaching Jesus, now he sees Jesus in the distance and he says, behold the Lamb of God. And there Jesus asked John the Baptist to baptize him. We see that Jesus is baptized just before our passage, and now some of the followers of John the Baptist now actually become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see some of the first disciples that are formed here in this passage. So that's a little bit of context for us. Let me read this passage for us in its entirety, okay? So be patient with me. The next day after Jesus was baptized, again, John this being John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. We know from the text that one of them was Andrew. Most Bible scholars believe the other one is actually the author of the gospel, the apostle John. Okay? Two of, two of his disciples were standing there with him, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, once again, behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him, and said, uh, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? 
He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descend." Um, um, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. There's a lot here in the passage today. I'm not going to cover all of it, okay? That's just a, just, just a warning up front. But let me cover just a few things this morning. As Jesus appears here, we find what I think is really three steps to a life worth living. That's going to be our focus this morning. Just three steps to a life worth living. Number one. How do, how do I start a life worth living? Number one, start by knowing Jesus and being known by Him. Start by knowing Jesus and being known by Him. The first thing that jumps out in this passage early on is that these men, uh, it jumps out about these men is that knowing Jesus truly sees or, or seems to be at the core of their de- uh, decision to following Jesus. Over and over again in the text, John is trying to highlight that this invitation to follow Jesus is primarily about who Jesus is. No less than seven times in these verses is Jesus given some kind of title, Messiah, Lamb of God, descripting words about who Jesus is. What is his character? What is his being? What is special about him? John is using this to show us that knowing Christ makes all the difference for these men. Knowing who Jesus was, coming to a knowledge of who Jesus actually was. He was the promised Messiah. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was the spark that caused the following of Jesus. John the Baptist is out in the wilderness pointing people to the Lamb of God, Jesus. And he continues that same work here in this text. John is standing with two of his followers, Andrew and the Apostle John. And and he basically says, guys, check it out. Here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And these two men, upon hearing and knowing about Jesus and who he is, decide that day to follow Jesus. They walked away from their mentor and followed Jesus. It seems unlikely that this is the first time that they heard this. John's been teaching 
for months and months now about the coming Messiah. It might not even have been the first time that they met Jesus. It certainly wasn't the first time that they heard about Jesus, that they heard about the coming Messiah. But look what happens. Upon hearing about Jesus now and knowing Jesus now, two of the ones left John and followed Jesus. It's as though they heard again for the second or third or fourth time that Jesus was the God-given Lamb. And at this moment, their faith was sparked. They understood their sin. And they decided to drop everything and follow Jesus. It's important for us to understand. For most of you, today is probably not the first time you're hearing about Jesus. But friends, it's important for us to understand. Hearing is not knowing. Hearing is not knowing. You can sit here and listen to me wax eloquent every week about who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Hearing is not knowing. It's not salvation. It's not transformation. Let me encourage you to have your faith spark today by truly knowing who Jesus is, what he has done for you, and how your life can be changed through him. Until you move from hearing to truly knowing, you do not have salvation in him. So don't make this the sixth or seventh or twentieth or hundredth time that you've heard about Jesus, and yet walk out of here today and not truly know him. At the end of our text today, if you skip there, Nathaniel, right, verses 47 through 51. Nathaniel is a little snarky. He doesn't believe that anything good can come from Nazareth. Oh, oh, by the way, that's where Jesus comes from. But he receives sort of a double blessing here because when he comes to Jesus and he comes to know Jesus, he finds that he's actually known by Jesus. As he approaches, Jesus already knows things about him. And it shocks Nathaniel. And and Nathaniel puts this faith in Jesus and follows after Jesus. Now, I don't have time to get into all of this today. I'm already running low on time. But the call to Nathaniel is the call to us today. The good news of Jesus is in coming to Jesus for who he is and getting to know Jesus for who he is, you find that you are truly known by Jesus. In coming to Jesus, we find a life, we find ourselves that we are most loved and cared for by God. We are truly known and truly loved in Him. It's not this sort of relationship where I place my faith and trust in Jesus and He is kind of just out there and impersonal. No. You come to Jesus and know Him as Lord and Savior and you are known and loved by him. We are truly known, truly loved by him. For many of us, having somebody truly know us is a scary feeling because we have this idea that we don't want anybody to truly know us, truly know our, our innermost parts because if they actually saw us for who we really were, they wouldn't want to know us. They'd walk away. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus knows you better than yourself and is not scared off by your sin. In fact, that's why he came. 
Because He does know you. He knows me. He knows I'm a sinner desperate in need of a Savior. And knowing that didn't cause Him to walk away, it caused Him to act. To come and die for your sin and my sin. To change your innermost parts. That's the grace of the gospel. That that Jesus knows you. He loves you. He died for you. And he wants to be with you forever and care for you. Coming to Jesus and knowing him is to be truly known and eternally cared by him. So first step, know Jesus and be known by him. That starts a life worth living. Number two, commit to following Jesus and be changed. Commit to following Jesus and be changed. Knowing Jesus is wonderful. Coming to faith in Jesus is amazing. It is life-altering. It is the beginning of the life worth living. Next is the following part. It's the enjoyment of getting to walk with Jesus day by day. And every day you walk with Jesus is a day of change. It certainly was for the apostles here, right? When Andrew and John began to follow after Jesus, he turned and saw them in verse 38, and he said, what do you seek? Now, this is the same Jesus who just a few verses later is going to know all these things about these guys that that they never shared with him. So, it's not as if Jesus doesn't know the answer to the question, but he's trying to draw out from them what drives them. What is their desire? Why are they following after him? Is it for selfish reasons? Do you want status and power by being in the innermost circle of King Jesus? Do you want to be comfortable with plenty of material benefits, free from pain and sorrow, or do you actually want to know me and serve me? That's what Jesus is getting at. What do you seek? It's a good question for us today. Sitting here this morning, what are you really seeking in life? What drives you? Nothing outside of a transformed life through surrendering to and following Jesus day by day, friends, nothing that you seek apart from that will ever fully bring you satisfaction. Andrew and John answer in verse 38, Rabbi, where are you staying? Seems like a bit of an odd question. Guys, what are you seeking? Well, Rabbi, where are you staying? It's kind of like the, well, let me answer that by asking you this, right? You know, we, you know, you ask a tough question and you don't want to answer the question, so you ask the question back. But it seems as though what they're actually saying is, listen, we don't want to just have this short fly-by-night conversation. Come stay with us so we can get to know you better. It's this idea that when you come to Jesus and you, and you get to know Jesus, you want to spend more time with him. And so let me ask you this. This question, are you a passerby on the road with Jesus, or do you invite him to truly commune with and change you continually? Those are two different things, right? It's one thing to say, yeah, I know Jesus, I believe in him. It's another thing to walk with Jesus day by day. It was only after Andrew and John spent that evening with the Lord that they became witnesses of others for Jesus. Jesus' reply is always, his invitation 
all, or uh, uh, Jesus' reply is always his invitation. Verse 39, come and you will see. If you've ever, if, if you've never met Jesus as Savior, that's what he invites you to do. Come and see who he is. Come and get to know him. Learn more about him and trust him as Savior. Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what Jesus invites you to do this morning. Come and see who he is. And when you get to know Jesus, you see that his yoke is easy. His burden is light. And in fact, he removes the burden of sin from you. If you have met Jesus as Savior, Jesus has an invitation for you. And that is basically this. Come have breakfast with Jesus and find eternal nourishment. Have breakfast with him day by day. Find in Jesus each morning nourishing food for the soul. After their evening with Jesus, Andrew immediately found his brother Simon, Peter, and said, we found the Messiah. But they're still a little confused about what's happening. So what does Jesus do? Does he leave them in their infantile knowledge of him, their infantile faith? No. He took Andrew and John and Peter where they were at and began immediately to mold them into who he wanted them to be. Only through spending time with Jesus, communing with him, being with him, does the Holy Spirit do his greatest work of molding you into who God wants you to be. You are made new at salvation. There is no doubt about that. But that continual sanctification is done as I walk in step with Jesus. That's what he does with Peter and Andrew in this passage. And so, first off, come to know Jesus and be known by him. Second, follow Jesus and be changed by him. Are you following Jesus today or do you just know him? Or maybe you don't even know him. Wherever you're at, there's a place for you today to start on the journey of the life worth living. For some of you, it's knowing Jesus as Savior. That's the action step you need to take this morning. For others of us, it is moving from knowing to truly following and experiencing that progressive change of God in our life. As we invite the Holy Spirit to have more and more control of us as we walk in step with Jesus and and the Holy Spirit begins to mold us into the image of Jesus. Begins to fuse the mind of Christ with ours. Isn't it amazing? The more time you spend in Jesus, the more time you spend in his word, the more you begin to think, act, and talk like Jesus. So follow Jesus and be changed by him. Maybe that's your action step today. Maybe part of your action step is number three. 
share Jesus with others and be used by Him greatly. Share Jesus with others and be used greatly by Him. Right after meeting Jesus, what happens to the disciples? They immediately bring others to meet Him. They come to know Jesus and be changed by Him. What, ha- what is the natural reaction to having your life changed by Jesus? For the apostles, they, they couldn't help but tell other people. That should be our natural inclination as well. The disciples are like the newly engaged woman. What do they do? They want everybody to see that rain, right? If they're not like forcibly pushing that rain in your face or having 900 pictures of it on Facebook, they're kind of just, you know, walking around, you know, all weird, you know, kind of like this, showing off that rain, right? And you should. It's something to be proud of. It's an exciting moment. That's what the apostles are like. They want to show off King Jesus. They can't help by wanting to show off what God has done for them in the person of Jesus. Right away, John the Baptist's disciples follow after Jesus. In verse 41, John the writer says that the very first thing that Andrew does is tell his brother, I love Andrew. You look throughout the Gospels, every time you read about Andrew, and listen, we know very little about this guy. He wasn't his brother Peter. He wasn't the boisterous guy. He wasn't uh, uh, John, whom was probably the closest disciple of Jesus. But what I love about Andrew is he's this no-name guy who every time you see him, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. That's Andrew. My favorite historical preacher, Charles Spurgeon, said, I will not believe that you have tasted the honey of the gospel if you can eat it all by yourself. What's he saying? I'm not sure you really tasted the fullness of the gospel if if you can just put it under a rock in your heart and not share it with somebody else. The very next day, they all go to find Philip. Immediately after, Philip goes to find Nathaniel. Boom, 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 boom. One right after the other. They can't help but telling other people about the change that Jesus can make in their lives. One right after the other. And what was evangelism like for the first disciples? It was not brain surgery. It's amazing how incredibly simple. We make this so complicated, so scary. What was evangelism for the disciples? We have found Jesus. Come and see him. Let us share, come and see Jesus, and let us share with you what he's told us. That was evangelism. And that's evangelism today. Invite people to come learn and see Jesus for who he really is, and share with them what you have learned and you've come to know about Jesus. We make it so difficult. We don't have to impress people with our learning and our insights. Our job is to testify and invite. Work for the apostles. Work for the early church. Is it difficult? You better believe it. But what we are called to in all of its parts is actually remarkably simple. Testify and invite. You may not have all the answers, 
You may not be the world's greatest evangelism or um, evangelist. Great. I'm not either. You may not have all the answers. That's okay. Here's my encouragement to you. Take some time this week, pull out a sheet of paper, and just write down this. What have you found in Jesus? What has he done in your life? What have you come to know about him, and how has he changed your life? After you write that down, go find a friend, a coworker, a loved one that you have a relationship with, and just share what you found in Jesus and what he has done to change your life. It's remarkably simple, friends, but we just don't do it. We should not be able to keep the gospel bottled up if we've truly been changed by it. God doesn't need heroes. He's the hero. What he needs is faithful, no-name people like you and I that will simply do what he says and leave the rest up to him. Let me share with you a story. Some of you may know this, but one of the greatest evangelists of the 19th century, two of them really were, one was Charles Spurgeon, the one that I just talked about, and and the other one was a guy by the name of D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody. He was from Chicago, an amazing evangelist for the Lord, was not a learned man. He butchered the king's um, um, uh, English every time he preached, but he led thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people to the Lord Jesus Christ. But did you know how he came to faith? Well, he came to faith at the age of 18. And he was working in a shoe store in Chicago. And there was a faithful little man by the name of Edward Kimball. He was a shy and timid Sunday school teacher. And for whatever reason, God burdened his heart for this kid named Dwight. And, and so he felt the call of God in his life to talk about Jesus to D.L. Moody. But he knew that D.L. Moody was a snarky, aggressive, arrogant kid. And so this was going to be difficult. And so Kimball was scared to death. He was already a stammering, like me, stuttering, shy individual. But he sensed this call of God on his life. So what is he to do? He spent days walking back and forth in front of the store where Moody worked, but could not bring himself to go in. He was shy and scared. And finally, he knew this is what God had for him, and he said, I'm just going to do it, so he walks in. He's still scared to death, but he says, where is Dwight? And they said, he's in the back, putting some shoes away. And he goes in, and that day, he shared the gospel with D.L. Moody, and that day, came to faith. Years later, somebody said, what did you say to this? What did you say to Moody? He said, I don't know. I was scared to death. I went in there, and I think I told him about God and about the cross. I didn't expect him to get saved. I just knew that God wanted me to share who Jesus was with him. It's amazing the ministry of the evangelist D.L. Moody leading hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people to Christ. But friends, there might never have been a D.L. Moody if there wasn't a stammering Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball. Most of us will never be D.L. Moody. All of us can be Kimball. 
all of us can take our stammering self, be faithful, and tell somebody about Jesus and let God do the rest. All of us can be Edward Kimball. As I close today, it's important for us to understand what God can do with one insignificant but faithful life. There's an old song called, Must I Go Home Empty-Handed, an old hymn. It's about facing King Jesus with no one with you. We need to realize that when this life is over, it will be over. And do you really want to look back on your life and say, man, I never told anybody about the Jesus I claim to love. You listen to all of our songs. We get up and we sing them every Sunday about how Jesus has changed our life, about how much we love him. We are devoted to him. We know the impact that he makes on our lives and other people's lives. What a horrible thing for us to get to the end of our lives and say, I never told a coworker, a loved one, a neighbor, a friend, It said that 98% of Christians will never invite an unchurched, unsaved person to church or share the gospel with them. 98% of Christians. Only 20% of Christians will have the gumption to invite a Christian friend to their church with them. But 98% of us will never share our faith according to the statistics, and will never invite somebody that doesn't know Jesus to a gospel-preaching church. Friends, my goal is that we will change that statistic. And where does that change start? It starts with one. Not only does it start with one person that commits to be faithful, it starts with one person that you commit to pray for and share Jesus with. And so, friends, let me encourage you with the same question I started with four weeks ago. Who's that one person? in your life? Who's that one person that you are praying for and sharing Jesus with? Friends, you will never truly find the life worth living if the changing gospel of Jesus does not become infectious in your life. And Friends, when you've experienced the life worth living found only in Jesus, how could we not want people around us, those we love, those we know, how, how can we not want them to have the eternal life worth living as well? And so, once again, who is your one? I pray this week, if you've not been answering that question, that you will answer it, and that you be faithful, starting with that one. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word today. We thank you for the joy it is to know you, to be known by you, to follow you, and to share you. I pray that wherever we are in that journey, that we would have an action step of faith and action today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.